Hey, it's Matt Cross from UMass Basketball, and I've got a slam dunk insurance recommendation for you. I'm a Massachusetts native myself, and I know the importance of hometown loyalty and toughness. When I need insurance as tough as me, I choose Amherst Insurance. They've had UMass Basketball's back for decades, and they'll have yours too. Trust me. Amherst Insurance isn't just an insurance agency. They're a part of our community, deeply rooted in Massachusetts values. They understand the hustle, the spirit, and the pride that defines us here. So if you're looking for a hometown insurance agent who's got the same drive and determination as me, it's Amherst Insurance all the way. And remember, when you make that call or visit the NathanAgencies.com, tell them Matt Cross sent you. UMass fans, Josh Coney, the latest addition to the UMass basketball family. The energy here is unreal, and let's not forget UMass football season is revving up, and I'm all in. Now listen up. Moving can be a hassle, but five college movers made my transition seamless. Mention my name, Josh, and you'll not only score exclusive pricing, but tickets to a UMass basketball game of your choosing, courtesy of five college movers. So UMass fans, let's rally for football, get ready for basketball, and when it's time to move stress-free, team up with five college movers. Go UMass. Big, warm welcome back. This is Commonwealth Conversations, Everyday Minutemen Stories, brought to you by the Massachusetts Collective. I'm your host, Nathan Strauss, and today's guest is the one and only Tom McLaughlin, who has worn a number of hats over his uh, the course of his UMass involvement. He was a UMass men's basketball player. He was a UMass men's basketball coach. He has been an agent. He has been an author. He has been a businessman. He has been around the world and back and now uh, is amongst one of the most storied people we have had on this show. Tom, thank you so much uh, for being here and joining us today. Good. Thanks for me, and, uh, Nathan, for what you guys are doing for the university and for the basketball players and the student athletes at, at the university. Now, your story is so, so interesting and it spans so long. You're from the Bronx. You go to Tennessee and then you transfer to UMass. How did you find UMass after, you know, your, your time in Knoxville? Well, UMass sort of found me. Uh, what happened was I, I was uh, the first Northern kid that played at the University of Tennessee. Uh, and when I went down there, it was just different. Uh, it was a great place. The people were terrific. And, and uh, but the coach was very distant. It was even the, the thing where he had a, uh, a system where you'd have to call the secretary and make an appointment with him to talk to him. It, it was just a little bit different. And he was at the time uh, getting the University of Tennessee into the top 20. And he was fighting Adolf Rupp at Kentucky. And he, he in fact, would go on and beat him at Kentucky. But uh, it was just, I had older parents. My parents were in their 60s when I was in college. And uh they didn't get a chance to see me play for for the year and a half I was down there. They never got to see a game or anything. So what I did was I decided to transfer. And uh, when I, when I did decide to transfer, I came back North and I visited uh, UConn and Boston college and Jack Donahue, who's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's high school coach and a coach at Holy Cross and a family friend, he said, Tom, why don't you come up here to Holy Cross? And I went up to Holy Cross and I worked out with their team for like two or three days. And Jack uh, was trying to get Holy Cross to change their policy of letting transfer students in, which they did, didn't do. And you knowing anything about Holy Cross over the years, 
when they uh, those Jesuits decide to do something and they say they're not taking transfers, they don't take transfers. So he said, I can't have you playing against me at Boston College. I just can't have that. And uh, he said, why don't you go take a look at UMass? And I went up to Amherst and I, I uh, met with uh, Jack Lehman and Pete Broca and Ray Wilson. And uh, I just liked them. And then I then. Jack said to me, he said, you know, I've never seen you play. And he said, can, can you, do you mind working out? I said, no, no problem. This is a different world. And he said, uh, I'd like you to play one-on-one with Julia serving. I said, sure. So I went up in the old Boyd building and Julius and I worked out for a while. And, and, uh, another guy came along. Rick Vogley is another guy on the team. And, and, uh, I just felt so comfortable with Julius and Rick and uh, Pete Broker was terrific. Pete said, Hey, if you transfer here, you're going to play and you're going to start right away. You're going to get playing time. And that was enough. I could trust Pete. And then uh, it worked out for my benefit because I go to UMass, I get to play with Julius Irving, get to play with Al Skinner, get to play with Mike Flanagan. People forget Mike Flanagan, the baseball uh, Cy Young award winner was a UMass basketball player. And I uh, get to play with Billy Endicott and Charlie Peters and, and Peter Troll and Jimmy Burke and just great, great guys. Uh, I can't say enough about how, how welcoming they were. And uh, we went on to win a lot of games. And uh, one of our, well, we had a reunion a couple of weeks ago, a couple of us got together up in New Hampshire for lunch. And uh, one of the guys said to me, he said, you know, three of the top six teams of all time are from that era. So uh, I feel privileged to play at such a great university and uh, to win some games. You and Dr. J, a couple of New York kids who end up tearing it up at the cage. What was it like? I'm sure you've gotten this a lot, but what was he like as a, as a teammate, as someone who was around him all the time and in his final college year? Julius was terrific. I mean, he was so friendly. Um, Pete Broca said to me, he said, you know, we're going to get you in shape. Because back then you had to sit out a year when you transferred. He said, every day we're going to put you on Julius. And I want you to guard him, hold him, grab him. So Julius and I became very good friends out of that. And after every practice, we'd stay and play one-on-one against each other. And uh, he is as nice a guy as as you could find. You know, when, when, he, when he was at UMass, he was uh, dating the chancellor's daughter. And uh, Carol Bromley was her name. And, and it was just a nice, nice time to be on the campus. And it, it was a uh, nobody big timed anybody. Everybody was just normal. Like Julius had a 36 point and 32 rebound game against Syracuse, a nationally ranked team. And I don't even think he looked at the stat sheet. I mean, that's the way he was. It's uh, it's such a, it's such an interesting part of UMass basketball history, and I think people really have spoken so highly of of Jack, um, in the last couple of years, and really since, uh, you know, he left UMass. But talk a little bit about about what he was like as a coach too. Well, Coach Lehman was a uh, blue collar guy. He recruited Billy Endicott, and the people back in the day, 50, 50 years ago, forty years ago, all know Billy Endicott because. He was a sort of a Boston legend. He played in the old tech tournament they used to have at the Boston Garden. And the night before the finals, one of the uh, opposing teams happened to run into him. And they beat him up. 
and he was sent to the hospital. He lost his teeth. He he was really beat up bad. He couldn't move his his uh, arm. And he went and played the game the next night. And uh, when Jack recruited him, Billy was deciding between the University of Georgia and UMass. And Billy said, hey, coach, I got some bad news. I think I'm going to Georgia. Jack Lee says, don't do anything, Hoss. He called Billy Hoss. And he, he went down to Billy the next morning in Somerville. They met at a donut shop. Jack, you know, in his rush to get there in the early in the morning, he probably had to leave Amherst at 6 a.m. Or, or, or earlier than that. And he gets down there. He had forgotten his wallet. So Billy had to pay for the, the coffee and donuts. And Billy, being a kid from Somerville, he said, I only have my last $5 in my wallet. He said, I didn't want to give it up. But he said, I felt so bad for the guy. He said, how could you not go on, go go play for him? So that's what Billy, Billy was one of those guys who, the blue collar guys like Peter Troll and Jimmy Burke, guys who, and Rick Vogley, who just played hard. And Jack found those kind of guys. You know, as time progresses forward and, you know, new people like myself who, you know, have, have gone to UMass, graduated UMass, we sort of know the history that we grew up with, but how do you, or what is the importance to you of, of like, you know, keeping that history alive and kind of telling these sort of stories? Well, Nathan, that's why I'm doing this, this podcast, because I want to make sure that people know we have a great history. People don't know that uh, Johnny Orr was the coach at UMass. Now, Johnny Orr, if you're a Midwestern person from Michigan or Iowa State, he's a legend there. He left UMass and went to Michigan in the Big Ten, and he was a, a great coach there. And then he went to Iowa State and made a lot of money. But he he was uh, he was an ass- assistant coach at UMass for Matt Zunick. And Matt Zunick is another famous guy who uh, was Jack Lehman's college coach at BU. So I think when you see the history and you see the people that have gone through it, you know, Rick Patino played on our team, Mike Flanagan, as I said, the baseball Cy Young Award winner. There were just people that were in that program that were quality people and good people. And it's uh, it was it was a fun time to be on the UMass campus because any place you went on the campus, you know, if I walked into the administration building, people would say hi to me. Hey, Tom, how's the team doing? Or you'd walk downtown to the bank, the Bank of America, and, and, and people would be like, hey, how you guys doing? You're going to win tonight or whatever. And then when you got to the – arena to shoot around before a game a 730 game there would be 2,000 students lined up in the cold and uh I felt so bad for them they had to stay out there because we had shoot around and then they didn't let them in until around five o'clock or six o'clock and uh you know Wally Novak the old ticket manager he said I said Wally how many people did you get into that arena and he said Tommy you don't want to know he said what happens is I used to tell the kids the fire marshals made us count the people coming in with clickers. He tell them, I tell the kids count every other one. <laughs> Get as many people in here as we can, and you'd be warming up, and the announcers would be saying, "Could everybody slide over?" Because they were in old wooden bleachers, and they'd all slide in there. So we had to have five five thousand people, six thousand people in some of those games. It's one of my big regrets as a UMass person that I was not able to, you know, that was not alive to see. UMass basketball at the Curry Hicks cage. Uh, it's one of my big regrets because it just seems like such an amazing atmosphere. What was it like come game time in that, in that space? It was, what we do is we run out and uh, we run out through this hoop 
and it was like a paper hoop they put up. And when we came out there and we were waiting to play Boston College or Providence or Syracuse or Harvard, and Harvard had uh, James Brown, the football announcer, and he was playing basketball at Harvard. And they had, they had brought, let kids in. All of a sudden, they said, we're going to let some minority students in. And they let them in to, to play basketball. And they, they had like three or four high school All-Americans besides James Brown. And that game beat was a big game. We killed them. It, it wasn't even, uh, you know, a game. We beat them by 20, 25. And what happens is I had friends from New York. I'd be telling them, hey, they said, you went to Tennessee. You had some All-Americans at Tennessee. And I said, yeah. And I said, but this guy, Julius Irving, that I'm playing with, I said, he's the best. And uh, we went down to the NIT. We played Marquette with Al McGuire, the famous coach. And his he, he had gone to the NIT instead of the NCAA because he didn't want to be traveling to where they were going to send him. He had a bunch of New York kids. So they played, and, and we beat. We lost to them by seven. But what's funny is during the game, he was saying, hey, you he said it out loud so the New York uh, press heard it. Hey, you guys didn't tell me this kid Irving was that good. You know, and that's that's when Irving made Julius made his, his first big name was to play Marquette and, and Madison Square Garden and hold his own. Well, it certainly worked out. And if people hadn't heard of him before, they they certainly know him now. And it's been great to see him progressively become, you know, more and more involved in the university as well, along with, you know, guys like Camby. But after your UMass playing days, you played in Europe for a little bit. Where were you when you played in Europe in, in 73 well, and 74? Well, I got to play in Europe. I, I, uh, Red Arback, I worked his basketball camp down the Cape when he had in Marshfield, the Celtics would work out. And Red and John Kelly was the assistant. They invited me to the Celtic rookie camp. And I said, I said, hey, wait a second. This is, you, you guys are going to cut me. I'm going to get cut in September, October. I won't have a job. So Red said, listen, you want to go play in Europe? And I said, yeah, I'd like to play in Europe. So I went down to New York, try out, uh, was signed that day to a team in Switzerland. So I went over there for Switzerland for two years and got to play in in Neuchâtel, which is about maybe 45 minutes outside of Geneva. And the beautiful, you overlook in the Alps and uh, on the French and Swiss border. It was absolutely a great, great time. And that's where I even got engaged to my wife, Debbie, who I met at UMass playing basketball. I went after a loose ball and uh, I banged into her. And in this place, Mike's was an after, like a bar off campus. And you were allowed to drink at 18 years old when I was back in college. And what happened is I go to bars and uh, I walked up to her and apologized. We spent a couple of hours talking and she ended up uh, going back to her dorm and telling her roommate, she said, I just met the guy I'm going to marry. So uh, now 10, I have four kids, my own and 10 grandkids. So UMass is very special to me and my family. And uh, you can't find better people than UMass graduates. I mean, my wife is just terrific at what she does and how she helps people. And just just, UMass people that I know are, are just top shelf. That's an incredible story. If I had seen that in a movie, I feel like I would think it's too good to be true. It's almost... It's almost scripted. Did, did she come to Switzerland with you when you were playing abroad? No, because she was teaching back in uh, the United States. So what happened is we got engaged. And then, then uh, I was called by Dick DeBizo, who was getting the Stanford University job in the, pack, in the old Pack 8. And he offered me a job. 
and I turned it down because I said, uh, I don't, I want to keep playing because I had been playing for two years. I said, I'm, I'd like to keep playing another five, 10 years. And then uh, Digger Phelps called me and Digger, Digger called up and said, Hey, Tommy, go to Stanford, learn the trade. And then I'll hire you. I'll bring you into Notre Dame. And Notre Dame at the time was one of the top four teams in the country. They had just played in the uh, final four. And I said to Debbie, I said, we better look at this. So we got a map out and we were in Switzerland. We're looking at a map to see where Stanford, California was. We didn't even know. And uh, I went to Stanford for three, three great years, another great university and uh, with great people. And it was, uh, I guess, destined to be, you know, I was just, I was just like a kid, like any young kid, you just take it as it comes. I, w without a doubt. And so your time at Notre Dame, when you were working with, with Digger Phelps, what was it like? What was the coaching scene like at that point in time? What were your responsibilities and, and what was your daily life like? Well, my daily life was uh, 24 hours a day basketball. And what I did was um, try and recruit the best players in the country. And at the time, we had Kelly, we had Kelly Chapuka, Billy Lambeer, Bruce Flowers, Billy Hanslick, John Paxton, uh, Tommy Sluby, Billy Vaughner. We had uh, 11 NBA players. And how we didn't win the national championship, I don't We got beat by Magic Johnson in uh the regional finals and him and greg kelser but but we had some very good players and some big games and we beat in those three years we beat seven number one ranked teams we beat virginia with ralph sampson we beat marquette with uh mark aguire we we beat some darn good teams and uh also we lost to some good teams too and that's sort of the way it goes. What was South Bend, Indiana like in uh, in the late 1970s? South Bend, Indiana was a, a football school. Obviously, Dan Devine was coaching and won the national championship in football. But basketball was right there. What Digger Phelps did, he was very smart in the media and in uh, television. He, we would play games against UCLA. We played games against uh, St. John's in New York. We played in the media markets. And we get the Chicago audience, so we were getting big time games all all over the all over the country, and we were probably at the time the, the one that had the most TV games. And uh, he was very smart in how he did it. And uh, we played in Philadelphia, New York, Chicago. We played. Uh, we go down to Texas and play there. We go out to uh, California, and uh, we played big games all over the country. And then you wind up at UMass as the head coach in, in 1981. How did that move come about for you? Well, that move came about, they approached me just as we were in the NCAAs at, 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 uh, and we were playing. And I I always had the love for UMass. And I remember the fans and how, how they would pack the place. And I, I said, you can go there and get them to win. You know, if you can get kids there. It's just that I didn't do it. John Calipari did it. and. Uh, but it shows uh, there's a sleeping giant at UMass. I think what ha would happen is if they can win, and especially in basketball, I think the fans will come out. And uh, the problem is with the NIL now and all of that, it's very, very tough. Uh, you know, UMass was lucky. They got Julius Irving. That was, a sh that was luck. <laughs> and then they got Al Skinner. That was luck. And uh, – to get players of that caliber 
and to put teams together. You know, Jack Lehman was was very good at that. We we, we talked the other week when we got together with small players uh, on Jack's demise and the tough time he had at the end when he lost control of the players and the kids, coach the kids just didn't listen anymore. That's uh, Jack. Jack should be rated right up there with the Dave Gavits and the, and the uh, guys who uh, are known throughout the country. But he wasn't that type to seek publicity. He was just the laid back guy. And he didn't dress in the fancy suits. And like D. Rowe would always be impeccably dressed. And Chuck Daly, you know, Jack, anytime Jack played Chuck Daly, he beat him. But Chuck Daly won NBA championships. Jack, Jack beat him when he was at B.C., we went to Penn. Penn was ranked in the top 10. We go down to Palestra and we beat them. And Chuck Daly's got all this recognition. But there was Jack. Jack was happy to be in Amherst and, and go over and play golf and go to the stables and have his breakfast. And he was and go up to the, the Whitmore administration building. Jack would love going up there and getting a coffee. And he, he was simple. He had a simple life. I think the story that we heard from his wife at the the Hall of Fame ceremony a couple of years ago is that uh, he would oftentimes get up early during snowstorms to shovel out uh, cars in the parking lots and he would go around to driveways as well. It just seems like he was such a stand up guy. And I'm so glad that, you know, the court at the Mullen Center bears his name and, and will do so forever because it really does seem like he was so instrumental to what UMass is to so many people. Well, you know what? If you went back to UMass and Jack was in that building and you go up to him and talk to him, he was so welcoming and friendly. And he's, he was, that's what UMass lacks a little bit now. They don't have that, those people that you walk back there and you feel, they make you feel that, that, that like it's like going back home. And that's what they got to get. And Frank Martin's uh, a tough, hard nosed coach and he's doing a terrific job. We got to get to a point where where people feel wanted by the university, and because the university has so much to offer, I think the problem is the Mullen Center is too nice, and I think I think the Champion Center is too nice. I think what they have to do is go, you know, they have to toughen up, and uh, it's like you know all the sports, you know, they, they the facilities they all have it's absolutely uh, amazing. I mean, John Calipari went back to the Champion Center and uh, he told me, he said, Tom, you're not going to believe this place. That's nicer than what we got in Kentucky. And uh, so now what the basketball team has had to do is win. And of course, Kentucky, whose court is uh, named after your former coach's rival in, in, in Coach Ruff, which is a nice way to get things full circle. Uh, you have a really interesting story about the birth of your son from what I understand, uh, in a snowstorm in 1982, you helped deliver him in your house? Well, it was an unusual, like, two-foot snowstorm in April. And what happened is, you know, we called the doctor. The doctor said, oh, it's okay. It's all right. You'll be all right and everything like that. And and um, my wife, because it was our second child, Debbie wasn't that concerned. But I was a little bit concerned. I said, because I, I can't get the car out of this driveway. I mean, we got to get the snowplow guy here. So I, it's around 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning, and I look out, and I see the snowplow guy down the other street. And uh, But then I don't see him. And I'm saying, he must be stuck. He was stuck. The snowplow truck was stuck. So 
I'm there, and I know, oh, right, so I'm talking to the doctor and everything on the phone, and then his nurse calls me and stuff like that. And, I mean, this baby's coming. So uh, I say to my wife, we had just moved into a brand-new house, and it had white carpeting. And she was worried about messing up the carpeting. And I said to Debbie, I said, don't worry about the carpeting. I'll get you whatever carpeting you want. So, <laughs> and we ended up having the baby at home. Uh, and I, I look out the window and I see the doctor's car stopped at the end of the driveway. And we had about a 30, 40 yard driveway and he's sprinting up the driveway. So I said to Debbie, I got to go down and open up the garage door for him. So I open up the garage door and he's, he's huffing and puffing, coming through the snow. And I said, you don't have to run. The baby's here. He goes, what? And I said, <laughs> the baby's upstairs. So you know, we felt good. The baby's uh, breathing. He came out of the, with an umbilical cord around his neck. And I had to get that, that around off his neck. And uh, it's just Tommy. Tommy. I renamed him Tommy John. And after my brother's John. And, uh, and Tommy after me. And the thing about it is. We've had that bond since birth, um, and he's gone on to do great things in life. The kid, the kid's a Princeton graduate. Uh, you know, I couldn't. I, I kid my grandkids. I said, my grandkids, Papa can't read, and they look at me and go, "What do you mean you can't? You wrote two books." And I said, "No, Papa, Papa's not too smart." And uh, but then when I tell people my son's from Princeton, oh, they say he must be pretty smart. So I chip off the old block. Yeah, I chip off the old block. But I remember when Tommy was deciding on schools, he was going to go to Ohio State and play for Jimmy O'Brien. And uh, Jack Lehman, he he said to my kids, he said to my, my son, Corey, and to Tommy, he said, get the best education. Get the best education. And that's why Tommy decided on Princeton. After your time at UMass as a coach, you entered the sort of corporate world and you did a lot of different stuff. You You were a salesperson. You were involved in the agency side of things, players association side of things. Uh, and now you're in the medical sphere. What has life been like for you in the post-coaching world? Well, I was very fortunate. Uh, I uh, got to, when, when I left coaching, Debbie and I sat down and we talked and, and she said, Tommy, you've been with your sons a third of their life. Uh, you've missed out on a third of their life because you've been on the road recruiting and everything like that. So I made a decision. I said, I'm going to take care of my own kids. And I have four kids. And uh, at the time we had two and then you know, we have four. And I said, I'm going to devote my life to my family and make sure that my family is the most important thing. And uh, that's what I did. And I went to work for Converse uh joe dean uh, the famous athletic director at lsu he was with converse at the time and he hired me along with al harden who uh in indiana was a basketball legend and i went to work for converse and i was put in charge of promotions with all the uh with uh, the celtics with and, and the new england area and i'd handle the celtics the, uh, the red sox the patriots and the college teams in in new england and it was a, a great opportunity. I got to be friends with Larry Bird. I got to be friends with Robin Parrish, Kevin McHale, and then a bunch of the Patriots like uh, Steve Nelson and, and, and uh, a bunch of guys who played for the, the New England Patriots. And then a bunch of Red Sox, uh, Al Nipper. And uh, there, was, there was a whole group of Red Sox players that I handled for Converse. And 
probably the biggest thing that happened was during the championship parade in 1984, 85, and the Celtics won the championship. Larry Bird doesn't wear hats. I have a hat on now. He, uh, he, I put seven or eight Converse hats in different colors in his locker before the parade, and he put one of them on. And the Converse people were thrilled. They got the publicity of him holding the NBA championship trophy with the, the hat on. And Larry has been a friend since. He's a, uh, you know, for two and a half years, I worked with him. He hardly said a word to me. And uh, I said to the equipment manager, Wayne Laveau, I said, hey, Larry doesn't like me. And he goes, oh, no, he really likes you. And then Larry, that night, I went into the Celtics prior to a game. I'd always get there early for shoot around and, and sit and talk to the players. And Larry uh, says, Tommy, come on in the back with me after the game. And I sat in the back with him and he had a six pack of beer and he said, I'm going to drink these. And then the reporters will be gone by the time I finish. So I could go out. <laughs> of course, he said the deadline will pass. So uh, he, he's a great guy and uh, a very, very good individual. And, and uh Someone I got to know through, through working with Converse. Yeah, he had the the weapon, right? That was his uh, that was his his shoe of choice back in the day. Whoa, the whole was... story about the weapon. Where do you hear this one? I, I, Larry didn't like leather shoes. He always wore a canvas shoe. So I said to the people in product development at Converse, I said, "Do you have anything that's really really light?" And the the equipment guy and the uh, product development guy said, "Yeah, I've got a." Uh, a Carino, a synthetic leather shoe that we make for Jimmy Connors, a famous tennis player. I said, "Well, can you put that on a, a, a on a on top of the canvas shoe?" He goes, "Yeah." So he put it together, and he gives me six pairs. I take them down to the the garden before I shoot around. And I put them in Larry's locker. Now, with Larry, you can't go up to him and ask him to wear something. He'll tell you no. So I put him in his locker just like I did with the hats for the championship thing. He comes out with the shoe on for shoot around. I have a high school buddy of mine who's a photographer for Sports Illustrated, this guy, Lou Capazzola. And I say, hey, Louie, can you go over and take pictures of him in that shoe? Because I was afraid he'd wear it one time and never wear the shoe again, but I wanted proof. So the guy from Sports Illustrated is over taking pictures of him in the shoe, and he ended up wearing the shoe. So, But he, he got into it. You know, if he didn't like it, he would have taken it off in the locker room and never worn it again. You would never get him to wear it. It's what was what was the sort of brand and negotiation scene like back then? Because nowadays, I feel like we talk a lot about NIL and you've got guys who are trying to find, you know, their own representation. But what was it like to actually broker a deal like with the hick from French Lick? Well, you had to be friends with him, first of all. If he didn't like it, he wasn't going to do anything with you. And he... Uh, you couldn't force things on Larry. You know, you had to be around the players. Like if you serviced them very well and made sure they had, like they didn't have to ask me for things. I made sure they had the latest sweatsuits. I made sure they had the latest hats. I knew around Christmas time, I'd give them a Converse uh, catalog to order stuff for the for the kids and family for Christmas. You had to stay a step ahead. And uh, you had to have a, I used to go to four or five Celtic practices a week. And hold their hands, basically. That's what I was doing. And Casey Jones was nice, and and Chris Ford, they were nice enough to let me into practice. And I, I, I go to Atlantic College in Brookline, a little old gym, and uh, I'd sit and watch practice. And I said to Kevin McHale one time, I said, hey, Kevin, 
you know, I'm watching you guys and I'm waiting to see these drill. They don't do, they didn't do drills. They just practice, ran up and down, shot. Uh, and I said, at the end of the games, I'm watching and I'm trying to figure out which plays you guys are running. And he, he looks at me and says, Tommy, we don't run plays. <laughs> we give the ball to Larry and he does what he does. He said, that's, that's the play. And I, I, I thought that was so funny that, that these guys, but they won championships and they, they, uh, but they weren't running plays. They let Larry do what he's going to do. You can take the coach out of coaching, but you can't take the, uh, you know, the coaching out of the guy, I guess for you. And of course you, you knew Red Auerbach from your time, you know, from your time, as you mentioned earlier, when, when he had you, when you were working his basketball camp. So yeah. that that's pretty cool. So, so after the converse, you became involved in the, the agent side of things. How, yeah. what was that? What was that transition like? Well, Bob Wolf, who was a absolute legend, uh, he's the one who started sports representation business. He's with an attorney, and he uh, he approached me and says, "Hey, I see how well you get along with Larry Bird, and he represented Larry." He said, "Would you you want would you think about coming to work with me?" And uh, I talked it over. Debbie and I went down with our four kids down to Cape Cod and met at Bob's summer house with his wife Ann. And uh, I went to work with Bob and I was with him for six, seven years and I uh, had the office next to him. And uh, he was a legend. He was a, a, a terrific man. He believed in the golden rule and to treat others with respect. And he was uh, very, very uh, well liked. But he told Bob told me stories about when he first represented Larry and them and John Havlicek and guys like that that he wasn't allowed into the negotiations. He'd have to sit outside and the player would talk to Red and then come out and talk to him. And Red wouldn't acknowledge Bob Wolf at all. He wouldn't. He, so that's a lot of times you see when Larry first signed, you never see a picture of Bob there. It's always Red Arback. And it was, uh, but Bob got players' rights. And then I guess the first player, Earl Wilson, who was a pitcher for the Red Sox, he came to Bob and asked for help. And that's how Bob started it. He, Bob was over a, a roast beef place in Newton or, or Brookline on uh, Brookline Ave or something like that. And he had an office and then he moved to the Prudential Center. And he had, we were on the 45th floor. It's uh, it's pretty cool for you to have experienced. I feel like you really did get an experience at every level of, you know, the sports industry as, you know, player, coach, salesperson, agent. Uh, and then you also were involved as a co-founder in the uh, the AIPA, the American International Players Association. What was that? What was that role like? And, and why did it come about? Well, Nathan, it's kind of it's kind of funny that uh, you've done your homework. You're, you're very, very good. I do uh, my best. <laughs> yeah, I know you're, you're doing a terrific job. But the AIPA was uh, founded by uh, David Rivers, the player who played the Notre Dame and was uh, with the Lakers and in uh, Minneapolis. He was uh, with the Minnesota in the NBA. David came to me because I represented Lafonso Ellis. Lafonso Ellis, the ESPN guy, and Notre Dame guy. Lafonso got a $15 million five-year contract uh, when he first came out. He was the fifth pick in the NBA draft. And David said, you know, can you help me out? Because I can't get back into the league. I'm fighting. So I, I tried to get David back into the league, and I, I was getting no place. So I said to David, 
you know what? Have you ever thought about going to play in Europe? And David was like, ah. So I got David a job at Antibes in France for $225,000, which compared to what he's, if he played in the uh, semi-pro leagues, he'd get like $5,000 a month or something like that. So he, he took the job. He went and won the French championship his first year over there. And I, I remember convincing the French, I said, take a point guard because what will happen is in the matchups over there, because I played in Europe, I knew that you're going to match up against a European guy and you can take it to the basket anytime because you're quicker. And uh, David was very successful. So then David gets, we get a call from a team in uh, Olympiacos, which is Greece. And they call and they say they would like to um, have him come over there, but they want to pay a million, I think it was a million five. So now David's got the big time money and now he's doing very, very well. So it's it seems that things are going very well for him. And then for eight years from then on, he made $2 million a year played in Europe because he won the the MVP of the EuroLeague. And he played for Olympiacos. Then he played for Milan. Then he played for uh, Tofas in Turkey. So he turned that where he, I think he made $16 million in eight years. There are so, worse places to live on $2 million a year than, than than Piraeus in Greece. I'll tell you that. Um, there, <laughs> but it is it is really cool how uh, how many people you know and have known because you've now talked about people as far back as you know obviously Jack Lehman um, even tangentially like Coach Rupp down at Kentucky as well and now people like you know Lafonso Ellis who is a, a household basketball name and going forward you know I'm sure you know your your network spans like half a century at this point of of basketball history and that's why. It's so great to be having this chat because, you know, as long as we could go, I feel like we could go twice as long. Like, I, I feel like you're just like a, a walking, uh, a walking history at this point of, of so many cool parts of the uh, of the basketball world. But are there guys who you've met along the way who you're particularly close with nowadays? Well, no, you know, when I was at Notre Dame, my job basically was to to figure out what UCLA was doing. That was our, we were going to beat UCLA. So that's what I did. I I try to figure out the game plans to beat UCLA. And then, then uh, what we, what I did is when I'd go out to LA, I'd scout UCLA. And then, then I, I'd go walk on the track at, at UCLA's campus right next to Paulie Pavilion. They have a track there and John Wooden would be walking. So I go walking with John Wooden in the morning at around 8 AM because he had retired and we walk around the track and we talk basketball. And, uh, it was an era of basketball where people were like that. You know, John Wooden, he was a friendly man. He was, he was, he was nice. And uh, he was an, an, an Indiana guy, so he at least would talk to me. And then at Stanford, when I was coaching at Stanford, there was a guy, named, a football coach, a guy named Bill Walsh. And Bill won Super Bowls after he left the Stanford and went up to the Bay Area to the 49ers. But Bill would always see me, and we would wear ties to work every day. And Bill would say, hey, you East Coast guys, you got to give up on these ties. He said, what are you doing? And I, when I'd see him, I'd say, hey, Bill, I'd say, it's amazing. I love watching your teams play because what he would do at Stanford is he'd get the athletes at the skill positions, wide receivers and running back and quarterback. And what he'd try and outdo is he'd out, try and out quick USC and UCLA 
and not play a power game. He spread the formations out. He'd have everybody moving. And uh, he was a really nice guy. And, and he had a, uh, a group of assistants that got to Cunningham and these guys that were, that were their assistants that were just as nice. And I became friends with them for a year. Denny Green, who, uh, who has since passed on. But uh, that, was, that was fun times because I knew all the assistants and we'd hang around together. And uh, it was it was uh, we go, we go to each other's houses for barbecues and, and it was the football guys that were really kind of nice. They would play racquetball and I said I'm not playing with you guys. You guys are too physical. They get they, they so Willie Shaw was the assistant football coach for uh, for for uh, Stanford. He's playing racquetball with these guys and Gunther Cuddyham knocks all his teeth out at lunchtime. <laughs> So I said, I see you guys. Willie Shaw is a, he was a famous assistant for, for Bill Walsh at uh, the 49ers. And these guys were just good guys. It was, it, was a, it was a fun time. Without a doubt. And recently in the last decade, decade and a half, you've jumped from the sports world into like the biotech medical VC world. You work now with blood and blood shelf life how did how did someone who has the upbringing and the, the the story that you have get into extending the shelf life of blood in an hiv trials medicine well though no, here, here's a guy uh this guy jimmy walker and i became friends and uh he and i were talking one time and, and we both said hey we were hitting around 60 years old at the time and, and I said to Jimmy, I said, what happens when you hit that age, then companies don't need you anymore. So it's going to be hard to, to keep getting employed. I said, we got to start something on our own. And Jimmy had been in the medical field. And Jimmy came back to me a couple of months later. He said, Tommy, you, you're not going to believe what I found. A guy, Bill Walters, who invented this technology for the U.S. military back in the 60s, Basically, was going to be used on ships and and that were out to sea for a long time, and the guys needed blood. He extended the shelf life of blood, which is forty two days, to uh, forever. And uh, so we got the patent of it. And uh, what we can do is take shelf life of blood, and now platelets also, which are great in fighting cancer, because it takes you a couple of hours to give platelets, and uh, we can we can secure the world's blood, blood supply. We have been talking to the uh, Red Cross and obviously hospitals in Boston. Uh, on our board, we have doctors from Harvard and, and from Children's Hospital in Boston and Stony Brook University in, in uh, Long Island. So, uh, and we're, we're trying to help the countries in Africa because that continent really has a problem with tainted blood. And the minority population has a problem with oxygen levels in blood. And that's why a lot of them are getting COVID very quickly because their oxygen level in the blood is down. So uh, it's been a very interesting journey. And we have the company for sale now. So uh, once it's sold, I'm not going to work anymore. That makes sense. It seems like you've done, it seems like you've just done so much. It's, uh, is for the blood part, is that because I know, I remember back in in the biology days, reading about how like sickle cell is more prevalent in certain populations. Is that what you're talking about with like the... Uh, the, the yes. different oxygen levels. Yes. Well, people after ten days, if you if you 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 store blood and after ten days, a lot of a lot of the blood will lose its potency. So even though you're getting a transfusion, you're not getting the highest quality blood. And uh, now there are there is even things 
called telomeres in the blood, which are a little bit longer. And if you have a lot of good telomeres and younger blood, it does a lot better for your system to be transfused that blood than to get blood that's old or stale. And what the uh, Red Cross does is after 42 days, they sell the unused blood and they sell it to research hospitals around the globe. And they make over $3.5 billion a year selling blood. How did you become an expert on this? And like, uh, how did you, how did you transfer? Cause clearly what I'm hearing from you is a little bit of like almost a sales pitch for the product, which I think connects well to your time with agency and, and with Converse, but like, it's a totally different feel. So how did you adapt? Well, no, I think anything that could save lives is, is uh, very, very important. And it's not that hard to do uh, this technology. And, and uh, the fact that, and I've always said this, and I've said this to the uh, to my my two there's two of us, uh, three of us that are partners in this. And I've said to my partners, I said, what it's going to take is there's got to be a catastrophe, whether it's going to be a dirty bomb on the subways in New York or some kind of terrorist attack where the world's going to need blood, and they're going to find out we need this technology to prevent this from happening. And what happens if there's a nuclear bomb somewhere in the world that goes off? And millions of people are killed and other millions of people need blood. What are you going to do? You better have a lot of blood stored. So that's that's why I've got into it. And it's a uh, it's a it's a no brainer to me that that uh, in this day and age, we should be able to secure the United States blood supply so that in any event of anything happening, we uh, can keep people alive. It's really an, an incredible journey, uh, and only just a couple more questions left. Because you are you're you're by the way you're you're now. We've talked for like almost twice or three times as long as most of these go, which is a testament to I think how many stories you have. And we might even have to circle back in like December <laughs> for a round two because I feel like there's so much more to flush out. But you've written two books. You've got four kids, ten grandkids. You're a member of the New England Basketball Hall of Fame. What are you most proud of, of, of what you've accomplished and, and what you've done and where you are? Probably the biggest thing, I'm, I've been married uh, 48 years to a wonderful girl and uh, who keeps me young, keeps me going every day. And I think the thing I'm most proud of is that uh, our family is uh, doing well. My kids are all doing well. In fact, three of them. All within the past year, have all moved back to Andover. They live within seven or eight miles of us, and they all live in these beautiful houses and with great families. And uh, I'm just, I'm just blessed every day. Every day I can look at it, and and uh, all I care about is those ten grandkids being healthy. And so far, everything has worked out. And and uh, sure, there's going to be bumps in the road, but uh, hey, it's it's you know I thank the University of Massachusetts. Uh, because it gave me a great start. If I hadn't gone to UMass, I wouldn't have met my wife, Debbie. It's a, it's such a great story. And if anyone's listening out there and, you know, if anyone is like, wants to bump into me, a broadcaster at UMass and try, try and also, you know, give me that same experience, feel free. Um, but it's, it's such a cool story and it, it's, it spans so many years and um, it's really great how you uh, continue to stay involved. I think Pat told me before you hopped on that, he doesn't know if you've ever missed a meeting of the collective, which is which is pretty impressive. Um, you know what? I take the collective. What Pat's doing is absolutely tremendous, and I tell the other players that that 
uh, when we get together, we get together both physically and, and uh, have lunch or breakfast together. And then we uh, do Zoom calls. I tell them all about it and what's going on with the university to try and keep them connected. Because uh, Amherst is a special town. And the university is sort of thought of second class here in the state with the BCs and the private Harvards and Dartmouths and UMass can hold its own with anybody. And uh, when you see those band, that, that band is unbelievable how they compete. And now the food services is number one in the country for seven straight years. You know, it's, it's a, uh, it has a lot going for it. And whenever you go up there, they're doing new buildings. They're building something, and uh, it's 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 a vibrant campus. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that you know the experience that you had about you know what UMass has done and how it's sort of impacted your life. I definitely feel the same way, and I think it's it's a testament to the university that um, that impact still exists, especially in a state with so many uh, like institutes of higher education. So I'm I'm all for it, and I hope that 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 this sort of podcast series gets people who maybe aren't in the UMass community in the same way to, to understand exactly just, you know, why this is so important. Um, but we like to end on the fun, the fun question, which is if UMass is down by one in a game, UMass hoops, which player in all of UMass history would you trust with taking that final shot? You can pick anyone from, from your day or all the way through now. Well, I would have trusted anybody that played with me on, on those teams back at UMass, you know, whether it was Billy Endicott or uh, Peter Troll or Julius or Al Skinner, whatever. It was, we all had a bond. So we, whoever, whoever Jack told was going to shoot, that was the guy who was going to shoot. And a lot of times it was Julius, but in re in recent history, I'd say Mike Williams, and what he did. I mean, that's amazing. What did you win eight games? You know, especially Temple and schools like that. He, uh, he was a gamer. I mean, he, he came up big when you needed him. Without a doubt. That's been our most common answer so far. And another great way of keeping uh, his memory alive as well. Um, what? Uh, where can people find you? If people want to read your books, if people want to learn more about you, do you want to be found is another question. But uh, if people wanted to connect with you, uh, how would they best do that? Well, they could do it probably through Facebook. I'm, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm pretty visible on there, and I have a Twitter account and that kind of stuff. But uh, I try to keep low-key about the books. I keep, uh, you know, it's the one thing about the one book, uh, Step Into My Limo, I think that was rated number two in uh, new releases with, with Amazon. That was about a year ago. And then my other book uh, was rated number 26. So even to be rated on Amazon, you know, my publisher said to me after I, I released the books, he said, he said, you don't realize, he said, there are about six million books on Amazon. And you're your first release, you're in the top two of all releases and the other. With, and and so I'm just happy that uh, people read the books that I've written. And there's, there's one called My Irish Mom, which is about growing up in the Woodlawn section of the Bronx in New York. When I go back there, the people all have read the Dawn book. So my brother Frankie, he told me he was at a, a reunion about two weeks ago down in Woodlawn. And he said they were all talking about the book. And I'm saying to myself, hey, at least if it brings some pleasure to some people, I'm happy. Without a doubt. Did you ever did you guys play Bronx Science in, in basketball back in the day? No. In New York City, what, what happens is they have 
the public school league and the Catholic school league, and they really never played against one another. You'd play like I played against Julius in high school. I don't even remember it. We played in a, a rec league in the summertime in uh, the Marshall section of the Bronx. And Julius was six three at the time, and uh, I I didn't realize it till like. 20, 30 years later, I looked at this program from there, and there was Julius's name. So I said, hey, I said to Julius, I said, God, I played against you in high school. So uh, it was like two different worlds, Long Island and, and New York City and then the Catholic High School League. But now they started a uh, the Bronx Basketball Hall of Fame, which is bringing back some of those old players and things like that. And I'm, I have to be on the board of directors of that. And uh, – it's nice to see uh, players like uh, that are being remembered from all those years back. It seems like there isn't a basketball-related thing in the Northeast or in New York or really across the whole basketball world that you could not find yourself involved with uh, in some way, shape, or form. But, Tom, I think we might have to end it here, but we also might have to come back and just have like a storytelling session where you just pull out you know, stories and names from a hat and go from there because... Uh, I feel like I've learned a lot and I'm sure everyone who's listening uh, will have learned a lot as well. So thank you so much for uh, for taking the time on this this beautiful fall afternoon. And um, hopefully we'll see you at the Mullen Center. Do you get out to a lot of games? I get out to some games and they're nice enough to give me courtside seats. And I, it's it's a uh, it's not like the cage. It's, uh, you know, but I think the thing is when it, it's going to eventually swing somewhere, we're going to get lucky and all of a sudden win some games we shouldn't win. And the fans will come out and it will be a place to be, you know, like when John Calipari had to go when everybody was driving out on route two, going to go out to Amherst. And uh, it's, you know, every time now that, that, that I think of all the years gone by and all the good things the university of Massachusetts has done, it's a great university. And, it, you know, I was at Stanford and Notre Dame. You can't find better places than that, but UMass has a place and it's a, uh, you know, we always competed against UConn, and that was our benchmark when we played. Beat UConn, and that's what I'd like to see UMass get the thing where they can compete step by step with UConn. Well, God willing, we will be there sooner rather than later. Thank you so much, Tom, uh, for sharing your UMass basketball journey, and thank you all for listening to the Commonwealth Conversations Everyday Minutemen Stories brought to you by the Mass Collective. As always, I have been Nathan Strauss. As always, our thanks go out to Pat and the whole Mass Collective for making this podcast possible. We hope you enjoy. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot. Tom, again, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, we will talk to you next time. The season is coming up, and we'll be here throughout all of it. Nathan Strauss Nathan, signing off. Oh, go Nathan, for it. As a former alumnus and a player, there's no way you can do anything but give back. And I hope that some of these people listening will take the money out of their wallet and uh, send UMass a check, send the NIL a check to, to support these kids because uh, these NIL people are devoted fans. Like when I went to some of their functions, there are guys that have been there for 50 years and following UMass sports. So uh, best thing you can do is to support these student athletes. Without a doubt. Completely agree. We will talk to you guys next time here on from the Mass Collective. Hey, it's Matt Cross from UMass Basketball, and I've got a slam dunk insurance recommendation for you. I'm a Massachusetts native myself, and I know the importance of hometown loyalty and toughness. 
When I need insurance as tough as me, I choose Amherst Insurance. They've had UMass basketballs back for decades, and they'll have yours too. Trust me. Amherst Insurance isn't just an insurance agency. They're a part of our community, deeply rooted in Massachusetts values. They understand the hustle, the spirit, and the pride that defines us here. So if you're looking for a hometown insurance agent who's got the same drive and determination as me, it's Amherst Insurance all the way. And remember, when you make that call or visit the NathanAgencies.com, tell them Matt Cross sent you. UMass fans, Josh Coney, the latest addition to the UMass basketball family. The energy here is unreal, and let's not forget UMass football season is revving up, and I'm all in. Now listen up. Moving can be a hassle, but five college movers made my transition seamless. Mention my name, Josh, and you'll not only score exclusive pricing, but tickets to a UMass basketball game of your choosing, courtesy of five college movers. So UMass fans, let's rally for football, get ready for basketball, and when it's time to move stress-free, team up with five college movers. Go UMass.